Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. If you ever spend some time in the circles of YouTube where they discuss the craft of making videos, the business of making videos, you'll regularly hear people refer to reaction videos as like the lowest common denominator of, of, of any kind of content that you could make. You're, you're making a video in which you just record yourself watching a video. And I do see the rationale in that argument. Whenever it comes up, if it were presented to me on a sheet of paper and I had a stamp, I would stamp that paper. But last week, I spent the better part of an hour watching quite a few reaction videos, and they were very special. Because these videos were showing the reactions to a new music video by the Beatles, called Now and Then. And what, what all these videos show, every single one, is basically just close-up webcam footage of grown men trying not to cry. At the time that the song came out back in November, I saw that it was trending on social media and then on Spotify. And so I clicked on it and I listened while walking the dog to this new two-and-a-half or three-minute track. And I thought, at the end of it, that sounded like the Beatles, and I was done. And then I didn't really think about it again. Because although I like music, although I listen to it every day for long stretches of the day, it's kind of not really my thing. If there's a big deal song that comes out, I will go on Rolling Stone and I'll read a review so that I can try to understand like how to think about it and what the what why it's having the influence that it's having. But when I did that about now and then and checked out a few other, I think I read a piece in The Guardian and something else on the BBC, the vibe that I got is that the song wasn't really shaking up the world. The few reviews I read were like, hey, this sounds really authentic, but also, meh. And so I kind of dismissed it and I thought, well, that must be a treat for the fans. Not realizing that I was looking to understand this song in the wrong places. The place I really should have been looking was YouTube, because obviously this song was released more as like a love letter from a group of artists to their fans than it was as like a commercial object. And so if it's something that intimate, you don't go and read a review from a professional critic in order to understand what it's all about, the place to go is something like YouTube, because YouTube is the platform for discussion. You can read in the comment section about their visceral reactions, what it reminds them of, or, better yet, Thanks to some of those allegedly lazy creators, you can see those visceral reactions. And I saw a lot of them. I don't know much about the Beatles firsthand because I'm not that interested in the Beatles, but I am fascinated by the obsessions of other people. Happy to hear people go on and on at great, passionate, earnest length about the art that obsesses them, even if I don't know anything about that art. And the reason I like seeing someone get so excited while talking about the art that has moved them or influenced them in some way, is that they tend to lose themselves in the subject of conversation. And by losing themselves in the subject of the conversation, they forget the context, if that makes sense. Like the decorum falls away, they start talking louder than usual, their smile is way bigger than they realize. And the Beatles are another of these topics that I've heard people riff about in the most passionate way. The reason I ended up watching all those reactions is that Last week, I read the new essay collection from one of my favorite people on Earth, 
David Remnick. The collection is called Holding the Note, and it's made up of eight or nine New Yorker profiles that he has written in the past decade or so. Profiles of great musicians in the latter parts of their careers. So he's got Bruce Springsteen in there, Aretha Franklin, Joni Mitchell, the best piece about Leonard Cohen that has ever been written. It's the piece about Cohen on his deathbed. Remnick is an audiophile, clearly, and within that arena of his general passion for music, he is, above all else, a profound Dylanologist. His Bob Dylan profile is probably the longest one in the book. It is the most sprawling, the most comprehensive, and it is written as if the author loves his subject. You can tell it was written by a nerd. If you listen to interviews with Remnick, which I strongly recommend, you will find that he is very open with his opinions. He seems to be about as transparent about his publication, The New Yorker, as any editor-in-chief is ever likely to be. He isn't evasive or falsely modest whenever someone points out his influence in the world of publishing and media. Remnick seems to understand that one of the precautions he has to take within his role is he has to employ a certain degree of self-censorship. But it's hard, if you listen to these interviews, it's hard to tell exactly where he is employing that censorship. I started to think that the, the way he is self-censoring is that he says almost nothing about his private life. And that is where the music reporting comes into play. Because for one thing, as editor-in-chief of one of the most popular publications in America, a weekly magazine with roughly 100 pages of in-depth writing, and working also as the host of its podcast, The New Yorker Radio Hour, Remnick does not have a lot of spare time. Hence, implicit in his taking on any topic and agreeing to write a 2,500-word piece about it, you know going in that this is something about which he, he gives a fuck. And if you're saying, okay, here's something about which David Remnick gives so much a fuck that he's willing to fit it into his already dawn-to-dusk schedule, you know that it isn't just intellectual curiosity compelling him to write this piece. You know that there's something personal there, either something that he's addressing explicitly or it's there between the lines. In this new book, Remnick tells for the dozenth time in public, but maybe the first time in writing, the story of how, like the degenerate, vein-smacking junkie that he is, Remnick took a call one day in the early 2000s by a guy who helps to manage Bob Dylan's affairs. Remnick picks up the phone and he says, Remnick here, and this better be fucking good. It is an actual documented fact that this is 100% how David Remnick possibly answers the phone. Anyways, this guy calls Remnick, this guy from the Bob Dylan team, and he says, There's a manuscript. Meaning, you, David Remnick, work in publishing, Bob Dylan has just finished his memoir, and I'm giving you a chance to read it first. The only catch was that the manuscript could not leave that building. So Remnick had to go to some strange loft-type place. I think he was in Brooklyn. And he goes in, and it's a weird layout. It's full of Bob Dylan arcana. And then, kind of, kind of the way that M. Night Shyamalan, Christopher Nolan, and Quentin Tarantino let people read their screenplays, like potential investors or actors, Remnick had to go sit alone in a room with the manuscript of Dylan's memoir, and he had to read it cover to cover in one sitting. And because he is a Dylan junkie, that is what he did. A few hours later, he came out of that room bleary-eyed and he looked at his Dylan dealer and he said, I want to publish a huge part of this in the New Yorker. And so a deal was made to publish a long excerpt of Bob Dylan's memoir in the New Yorker, but it was a handshake deal. A few weeks later, Remnick is sitting at his desk and he gets a call. Remnick here, and this better be fucking good. Same guy. 
He says, change of plans, Bob wants the cover. And Remnick hears that and he goes, what does that mean? Bob Dylan says, if you want to publish some of the manuscript, he needs to be on the cover of the magazine. Remnick says, the New Yorker is a hundred years old and we've never once had a human being on the cover of our magazine. Never, never even a photograph, it's, it's only artwork. Bob says, either he gets the cover or he takes the excerpt to Newsweek. And that was pretty much it. Bob Dylan published his first excerpt of Chronicles in Newsweek. Remnick writes about the aftermath of that encounter, some lingering tension that was quickly dispelled when shortly after the book came out, he was invited by the same guy to go for an exclusive early premiere of Bob Dylan's next album. But as I read more of these essays, I started piecing together some impression of what the author is really like when he's not wearing his reporter's cap. The thing I would have really liked to read about with respect to that phone call was his reaction. 